You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Ireland falls into line on tax is the Financial Times take today on the government's decision to join the new OECD Global Tax Plan, which will be unveiled in Paris later on. We're not the only country to do so. Estonia also said yesterday they would sign up, leaving Hungary as the last EU member holding out. For more on what this deal means for the EU, Suzanne Lynch, author of Politico's Brussels Playbook, is on the line. Uh, You put it slightly less sharply today, Suzanne. Ireland moves on tax. Uh, How how are the rest of the EU seeing these developments? Well, I think it's fair to say uh, that this has been greeted um, with a very positive uh, reaction across uh, the European Union. Ireland has obviously been under pressure from Europe on tax for a long time, going back well over a decade. And I think what was significant was that over the years when uh, Brussels has been pushing things like the common consolidated corporate tax base at one point and different issues around tax, the Irish government had always said, look, we want to do it with the OECD. Tax is, is not an EU competence. So I think once the OECD started going down this road of a minimum corporate corporate tax rate, then in a sense, I think Ireland had very little choice but to go with the OECD plan um, that was really being pushed when Joe Biden was elected too. So I think there's been a a very positive reaction here. Hungary a holdout? Yeah, I think this is the other thing to point out. I mean, it's going to be agreed uh, at the OECD and then at the G20, but it still has to be transposed into an EU directive. And that is going to take time. Now, I think one of the key things for Ireland was that the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, was in Brussels on Monday. He met not only the competition commissioner, uh, Margaret Vestager, but also uh, the commissioner for economy, Gentiloni, and also Dombrovskis, another commissioner. And I think he secured uh, assurances on two fronts. One was that uh, companies with turn- turnover of less than 750 million euro would still be able to benefit from the 12.5% rate. But also, and equally crucially, I think, is that when this does become EU law, that no new changes will be introduced at that point. Um, and I think now uh, the issue is with Hungary, as you said, Estonia also signed up. Um, Hungary, though, is a, is a holdout. So the EU still has to go through the process right. um, with through, through the meetings, through the finance ministers of making this into EU law. So Ireland will be vigilant that no new changes will be introduced at that point, like, you know, to maybe, int- you know, introduce a new and even higher rate or um, that Hungary, for example, may look for, for further changes. So that's something to watch in the next few days, what they're saying in Budapest. And it's a, it's a big issue, but as briefly as you can, Suzanne, can you update us on the latest developments in the row between Brussels and the Polish government over rule of law issues? Yeah, there was a hugely significant court case yesterday in Poland and that ruled that the Polish constitution takes precedence over some EU laws. Now, this is just one of a me- many uh, clashes that are happening between Warsaw and Brussels, a very right-wing government in power in Poland. And now I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Ursula von der Leyen and the Commission to act and effectively to withhold money from Poland. Um, they have already, uh, Poland has already uh, introduced, for example, at a regional level, LBGT exclusion zones, was, there was talk about oh, that right. earlier in the year that was hugely controversial um, and that was linked to regional funds uh, but the Polish government still hasn't got uh, got access to some of the recovery funds billions of euros that the uh, that Brussels is going to give to Poland so I think we're going to see a lot of pressure on the European Commission to take a tough stance against the Polish government uh, in the next few days. Suzanne Lynch, author of Politico's Brussels Playbook thank you very much indeed for joining us. <laughs> 
In what's being seen as a significant breakthrough against one of the planet's biggest killers, the World Health Organization has recommended the use of a malaria vaccine for children. The vaccine is to be introduced in sub-Saharan Africa and other areas where malaria proposes a substantial threat. Every year, the disease kills 400,000 people, almost 70% of them children. The director of the WHO, Dr Tedros Adhanam Ghebreyesus, who began his career as a malaria researcher, announced what he hailed as a historic moment. As some of you may know, I started my career as a malaria researcher and I longed for the day that we would have an effective vaccine against this ancient and terrible disease. And today is that day, an historic day. Today, WHO is recommending the broad use of the world's first malaria vaccine. This long-awaited malaria vaccine is a breakthrough for science, child health, and malaria control. Using this vaccine in addition to existing tools to prevent malaria could save tens of thousands of young lives each year. Dr. Tedros Adhanam Ghebreyesus there of the WHO. Let's talk now to Dr. Anne Moore, who's a vaccine immunology expert and senior lecturer in biochemistry at UCC. And thanks for joining us this morning. What is this vaccine and how effective is it, do we know? So this vaccine has been about 30 years in the making through various iterations and it's been developed by GSK Vaccines. And it is a what we call a subunit vaccine where you take a protein and you mix it with um, an adjuvant that modulates the immune response. And it's been a long time in the making, especially with the, the, the immunomodulatory adjuvant type. And it's been through multiple clinical trials over the years uh, with varying levels of efficacy. But now it looks like they've 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 finally got the, the mix right. And that happened a number of years ago when the EMA gave a, a approved its potential use. But the WHO then wanted to see in a pilot program if it would be effective when it's actually used in the community. And those that, that question has been answered now where it has been administered to uh, a few million children across three countries. And in, in parallel with, um, with drugs and bed nets, it is having a substantial effect in reducing uh, malaria in young children in those areas. Talk to us about malaria and its impact, particularly in Africa. It's a huge killer. It is a huge killer of young children, um, especially in the first five years of life. So if you can get past five years, your chance of dying from malaria goes down quite a lot. But obviously, if children uh, are getting the disease, it, it's having an impact on themselves and they can die. And we see we see uh, huge numbers of deaths every year in young children because of malaria. And it also has societal and economic implications as well. Um, if there are children sick, they need to be brought to hospital. It really disrupts uh, family life as well. So it's a very big killer. It, um, it, it, it's transmitted by mosquitoes. There, there are like bed nets and drugs that can stop um, uh, transmission of malaria to young children. But really a vaccine is a really key tool that, that is showing promise uh, to prevent, to keep those children safe from, from the disease. And even though this vaccine is very, it is good and it's effective, it is the first step in making a vaccine that is, is even more effective, but it is a milestone to, that, that we've reached. Mm. As you say, not only is malaria a huge killer, it, it, it has a large economic impact in many countries in Africa, and it also puts a considerable strain on healthcare systems. This could be a significant day for Africa, couldn't it? 
It, it, it is a significant day, especially where, it, where there are high levels of, of transmission of malaria. And way back in the middle of, of developing this vaccine, one of the big issues was the, the actual cost of that vaccine. And it is great to see now that not only in addition to the technical breakthroughs and clinical breakthroughs that we're seeing that the vaccine works, is that there is a cost model around it and the economics have been uh, looked at carefully so that the, the vaccine is cost is affordable as well as cost effective. So the, no, the number of lives saved and also the impact of those lives being saved, it is well worth... Um, and highly cost effective to use that vaccine in these areas. Mm, Can we just return finally to something you mentioned at the start? We've seen the pace at which COVID vaccines emerged. Why has it taken so long for this vaccine to be developed and approved? Well, I guess, uh, you know, it's a vaccine discovery, development and licensing is always a a fairly long road. I mean, this is is an incredibly long road for this RTSS vaccine. But it, it is a case of funding and it's a case of people caring enough to invest in vaccines that will save children's lives. COVID was, I think the world realised that, um, you know, it was that disease can have enormous impact on our daily lives. But, the, you know, there's multiple diseases where it is having impact on, on people's lives all over the world. And vaccines really can prevent that. So it is the level of interest that's in the vaccines and, and interest followed by funding to actually develop these vaccines. Dr. And it is an incredibly difficult area as well. Sorry, <laughs> no know, problem at all. Vaccine that works. No problem at all. Listen, thanks once again for joining us this morning. That was Dr. Anne Moore there, who's a senior lecturer in biochemistry at University College Cork. Community childcare providers from across the country will protest outside Leinster House today over the recently introduced National Child Care Scheme. They say it favours working families who are entitled to up to 45 hours of subsidised childcare every week. But children whose parents are neither working, studying nor in training are entitled to just 20 hours. Anne Carroll is manager of the Community After Schools Projects in Northeast Inner City of Dublin and she's been speaking to our reporter Amy Nereida. We provide an after-school um, service and a creche to 57 children on a daily basis who live, we believe, in, in a toxic, stressed environment. The new childcare scheme, literally, currently, we get paid for one-third of the children that we have participating in the service. The, well, the other two-thirds, what we're doing is we're trying to fundraise to keep the place open. I mean, if we close which it looks like will happen. Those children will be will have nowhere to go after schools or anywhere else. We're expected to plan and implement and provide a service regardless of whether funding has been secured or not. It's unrealistic and unfair to those children most in need. We have been in receipt of 50 cents per hour for a child for 20 hours a week, which is the equivalent of um, 10 euros per week, which is absolute madness. You can't run a service like that. The parents of the children are either not in employment or they're not in training. Parents who, who are in work are usually on zero hour contracts or minimum wage. That's Anne Carroll there. Well, Senator Marie Sherlock is the Labour Party spokesperson on employment affairs and joins us now. Uh, Marie Sherlock, you're welcome to the programme. There are two types of subsidies here. One that's a universal payment for children aged three and under, and it's not means tested. The other is where the difficulty as far as the the campaigners uh, are concerned arises, because it's the income-based assessed subsidy, which is for children aged between 24 weeks and 15 years. It is means tested 
tested on incomes of less than €60,000. So from your point of view, is is that the where the problems arise? Good morning, Audrey. And I, I think that the first thing to say is that this is a new scheme that we have in operation here. That the national, the new national child care scheme was was introduced at the end of 2019, start of 2020. And for most uh, families, I suppose it represented some progress, albeit um, very small progress and, and and far from what is needed. But you know, for for certainly a proportion of parents, we now have a situation where the national child care scheme is excluding or offering far less support to the most disadvantaged of families and the most disadvantaged of children and in particular when we look at after school care we have a situation where a child is offered 20 hours but the Department of of Children says that those 20 hours are effectively taken up during the school day. Now, you know, our argument and and, and childcare providers across the country have been saying this to to me and indeed to many other public representatives for since the inception of the scheme that this scheme fails to recognise, uh, to properly recognise disadvantage. It, it fails to recognise the importance of creche and after school care in the lives of children who come from households, very challenging circumstances. So it could be addiction, mental health, cramped accommodation or indeed very poor English language skills. And and, and, and often the creche or the after school care provides a stability, a reassurance, helps, you know, help with homework and whatever else in a child's life. And, and the situation at the moment is that there are children who should be accessing these services, who were able to access these services under old, older uh, childcare care support schemes are now no longer able to access those, access those services. Well, would they be better off on the universal payment or is it considerably less in financial terms? Well, well, well the, the key point is they're only entitled to the 20 hours if, if the parent happens to be not working. Um, so, so the reality is that uh, for, for some households, for some families, they, they simply don't have an entitlement to, the, to, to, the, 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 um, to additional hours if, 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 of course, the child is in school. And, mm-hmm. and, and the key issue for families here is that many are not in a position to pay or indeed what many childcare providers are saying to me is that they have taken some of those children onto their books, they have taken them into their care with no payment and of course that's not sustainable for any period of time. But they can choose between the universal payment or the income based assessed subsidy they can't have both so if they're not entitled to the subsidy under the income based one in terms of the extra hours is the universal one of no use to them either? The universal one is of no use to them because the department, particularly with regards to after school care, says that the 20 hours are effectively taken up during the school time. So, you know, there, there's two aspects to the scheme here. There's the financial support to providers, um, but there's also in terms of the entitlement to hours. And, and the real issue here is the entitlement to hours. So our key ask, and we have providers from right across the country, um, from, from Meath, from Tipperary, from Kilkenny, from Limerick and, and of course from where I'm based in, 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 in inner city Dublin coming to Leinster House today at 11 o'clock to make their voices heard because we've been trying to engage with the department, we've been trying to engage with the Minister now for the past uh, 12 months and while there is a review in place as was to be the case anyway a year after the operation, uh, the, the, the scheme coming into operation we, we really have no confidence that the department is going to move on these concerns. So are uh, you calling for equity then? Is that what you want? 
want what, in terms of the second subsidy scheme? What we are calling for is that there would be a new pillar to the new to the national childcare scheme that would ensure that no child is excluded, that no child is left behind, and that those most vulnerable and disadvantaged of children have uh, you know have access to, to to the proper care because childcare providers are saying they want to provide this care. Their heart breaks when they're having to say to a parent, "Actually, we're not getting support from the state for your child." Um, so so we need to ensure that no child is left behind. And, you know, really this scheme was a case of two steps forward and or one step forward and two steps back for, for some of the most disadvantaged of families. Because remember, under the old childcare um, subvention scheme, they those families were supported. And I have I have cases now of families where older children who were entitled under the old scheme and I know for your listeners this may seem a little bit complicated and technical but but for under the old scheme uh, some of the old the, the, the older children continue to qualify but younger children uh, mm. now coming into school don't qualify um, for, 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 for those additional supports and there's a very real inequity there for both of course families but for communities as well and we need okay. to see those supports in place. Can I just ask you finally with your economist hat on you're, you're, you're wearing it all the time I'm sure, but in relation to Ireland's corporate tax rate, the uh, revised text from the OECD um, spelling out, um, we, we don't know what it spells out, but the government is studying that at the moment. And the speculation is that we will at some point very soon sign up to a minimum of 15% corporation tax. Do you support that? Well, I think obviously we wait the details of, 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 of the final draft, but certainly for us at the moment and for the Labour Party, whether Ireland gets that change in wording or not, the reality is there's a greater uncertainty to Ireland uh, by not signing up to the international tax agreement in its entirety. There's a greater reputational damage to the country if we continue to single ourselves out by not signing up to the two pillars of that tax agreement. And Ireland would be made a laughing stock of if we're effectively... Um, um, made to, to hand over the difference between the 12.5% and the 15% and pass that on to the countries who are looking to collect it. So, you know, as my colleague Jed Nash has said repeatedly here, it's entirely feasible for Ireland to have um, to sign up to the 15% rate or whatever the rate may be for those companies that have revenues in excess of 750 million. But for those companies that have a, a revenues of less than that, then of course Ireland can have a lower or, or, or different corporate tax rate. But ultimately Ultimately, Ireland needs to be part of this tax agreement and, okay. and it would be very regrettable if we don't sign up to both pillars in their entirety. Thank you very much indeed, Senator Marie Sherlock. First, the chairman and the executive director resign. Now the council set to assist the reform process is being wound up. Has Launcher Care, the plan for the future of healthcare in this country, hit the buffers? Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly says he remains committed to delivering the universal healthcare reforms set out in the plan and has now set up or is in the process of setting up a new group to focus on the regional health areas that are recommended in Launcher Care. Eddie Malloy is a management consultant. He's a member of the outgoing Launcher Care Implementation Advisory Council and he's been asked to serve on this new restructured group outlined by the Minister at the weekend and Eddie Malloy, good morning to you. Good morning. This advisory council of which you were a member lost its chair, a couple of members resigned and now it appears you're being wound up, a new body being established. You're going to be on this new body, we understand. What is going on? Well, if you, if you first of all, think about what Slanter Care is. It's not a, a Minister Donnelly project. 
and it has more political backing than the national plan that you just mentioned. This document, the Sloan to Care plan, was crafted with their sleeves rolled up by politicians. And, it, and every party has an interest and a stake in seeing that it, that it, it works, that it, that it is implemented. Um, the, one of the major keys to achieving what Slauncher Care wants, which is integrated care on the, on the ground, care pa- so-called seamless care pathways, the key to that is to devolve authority from a monolithic centre down into a, uh, six, it is, um, sort of semi-autonomous uh, health services like that. And you will have a centre determining policy, budget allocations and major things mm. like that, standards, etc. I know, but just so, just come back for a minute, uh, Eddie, if you don't yeah. mind, to that fundamental question about uh, we had a council, this council uh, chaired by Tom Keane was, we understand, yeah, designed okay. to assist the reform process. Yeah. That council, uh, we had the resignations, the council now being wound up and we still don't know. And do you still know I, I, I why still, Tom Keane no, and why Laura no, McGahey resigned? No, I, I do not know why they why they didn't. And how the, can you go forward into well, something well, new if you don't know well, what well, was in place already yeah. failed? First of all, let me say, the, uh, Paddy Brough's article in the Irish Times last Saturday talked about how the council was really a eunuch. It, it was, and I agree with that. Window dressing, we, 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 it, Well, yeah, window dressing. We would have a meeting every two months. We'd have little focus groups with no real influence. But once the council started to try to exert influence to sort of uh, get the minister to attend to some of the things they were advising. Then they met resistance. And some of that resistance was pretty pretty brutal, to be honest with you. And I I don't know what encounters uh, Tom and Laura had that led them to to leave. I don't know what happened uh, in those engagements. Now, so... That it, there's probably unfinished business there, and I I can't comment on it because I don't know. And but you sh- very, very should you know before you agree to serve. Well, well, in for a example, neither of them have spoken to the to the council members. Neither of them. Uh, I gathered that Taoiseach met them. Um, I understand they were to or are about to meet the um, uh, Erectus uh, uh, Erectus Health Committee. But to move, so I can't, I, I can't enlighten you or your listeners on what went on. Okay, well, this then. Why then? Yeah. When you don't know this. Yeah. Why are you agreeing to serve on a new body? Because my focus and the focus of the existing, the other members of the council, and I think they, they, I'm, I can speak for them on this. What they want to do is focus on the prize, and the prize is the implementation of Slauncher Care. And you ask any one of them if you brought them in here, they would say that is what they want to achieve, and they don't want to lose sight of that in trying to understand what happened uh, with the, to cause the trigger the resignations. Now, there are three big chunks to be addressed, and as I understand it, Minister Donnelly is, is organised. One of them is the backlog of appointments, the 900,000 uh, procedures, list. the waiting list. The other one is e-health, that's mm. IT, that's way behind. Mm. So that needs, that's a big project, mm. waiting list is a big project. And the third big project, if I can call it that, big, big piece of business is decentralised, the devolution of a, from the centre, monolithic centre down into... Regionalisation. Yeah. The, 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 and that is now the sole focus of this new of group this you're group, going to be yes, part of. Of this group's job is regional you're, structures. You're a council member who hasn't been invited to be on the new body, Liam Dorn, uh, doesn't think 
that this new body will put Sláinte Care back on track. And he questions, as did Roisin Shortall, one of the architects of the yeah. Sláinte Care document, about how uh, this dividing it into a single item issued going forward it, is it, going to work. No, no, I, I, I would beg to differ with both. And, and I heard Liam. Liam was asked also, if would he serve on this group if he was asked? And he said yes, OK? He wasn't so, asked. Yeah. No, he wasn't asked, OK? Um so, the, 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 sorry, what, what was your question? My, my question was, why you're going to have a single focus on regional authorities yes, because, only. Because why will that work when Sláinte Care no, is it, a document that has to be delivered, we're told, uh, yeah. at all times? It, it doesn't, mean, it, it doesn't mean that there will not be reporting on progress on all the other items. Laura McGahey's group, which is still there, reported on what they called 80% of items on the list were being implemented. So there has to be a, a process of reporting in public on progress on those. This is a task which re- re- involves a focus on a very complex, challenging, technical and political task to arrive at and implement. The first, the easiest thing is to design them. The big challenge is to get buy-in from the people who will all be affected by these new structures. People will lose power, they will lose budgets, they will have demarcations eroded, and that is a very challenging task. We're told that in order for this, for a, the, the goal is universal health care. Yes. Uh, for that goal to be delivered, this needs to come with the drive and energy of the Taoiseach's office. And there is no sign that that still is going to happen. The Taoiseach himself said they don't have the bandwidth. Yeah, the the important thing here on the Taoiseach's office is that the reporting on this progress, on anything, on on something like this, on, on this kind of scale, or on like the reform of the guards is a good example, that the progress on this is not just accountable to a closed loop within the department. There has to be some degree of externality in the reporting in order to keep any department, any institution honest. And you can see that played out with the, with the role of the policing authority. Now, I'm going to be on this new group and I can tell you, I will have a very, I have written and spoken in public many times about accountability and you can't fudge it. So I'm going on in good faith onto this um, group. It's needed. You need a dedicated hands. This will not be a meeting every two months to have somebody put up a set of slides and say, what do you think? This will be coats off, uh, hacking away at this in order to create the structures and to do it in a way that respects the history and the demarcations and all the power bases, but nevertheless brings them on board. Because there have been many, and I've been involved in them, okay. been many structures and designed before. if it's not, before. will you say so? Pardon? And if it's not that, will you say so? Of course I will. Okay. Of course I will. Yeah. Eddie Malloy, we'll leave it there for this morning. And thank you very much for coming in to join us on Morning Ireland. Gardaí are searching for a convicted drug dealer and gunman who escaped from an open prison in County Cavan on Monday. He's John Mangan from Whitestown Green, Blanchardstown in Dublin. Let's get more from our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds. Paul, tell us more about him. John Mangan uh, was a senior member of one of the country's biggest criminal gangs in the years up to 2009 when he was jailed after he was caught with over €2 million worth of drugs, Gavin. Now, Mangan was a key figure in the organised crime group run by Martin Marlowe Highland. He was shot dead in Fingus, but people will remember that murder because an innocent plumber, Anthony Campbell, who happened to be just doing work at the time in the house when the killers arrived to kill Highland, was also shot dead, and he was just 20 years old. Now, that gang was then taken over by by 
uh, gangster Eamon Dunn, who was himself shot dead in a pub in Cabra at his birthday party. Mangan was arrested as part of that investigation into the double murder of Marlowe Highland and Anthony Campbell, uh, but so far no one has been charged or convicted. However, he remained a top target of the Garda's then organised crime unit. He was among 28 gang members at the time, brought before the courts and jailed. He was caught with the drugs on the 1st of August of 2006 in City West. The following year, he was also caught in the Comet pub in Santry with a loaded pistol and ammunition. Now, he claimed he had it for his own protection. He said he had lost count of the number of times his life had been threatened by rival gangsters. He was sentenced to 10 years for the gun, 14 years for the drugs, and was serving those sentences when he absconded. So... Why was he in an open prison and how did he escape? Well, he seemed to have turned over a new leaf. He was a long-serving prisoner. He was clearly on an enhanced regime which allowed him to serve the remainder of his sentence in Lock and House. It's an open prison where prisoners sleep in a bed, not in a bed in a room and not in a cell. And Mangan had freedom of movement. He wasn't going through locked gates to get from one part of the prison to the other. He had been issued with a prison phone which was monitored and he could use it. However, he was caught with a smartphone which allowed him to communicate with others outside without permission and that's against prison rules. He was therefore facing disciplinary proceedings and he would most likely have lost privileges and been have been returned to a cell within a closed, secure prison away from the open prison. So last Monday night, he walked out of the open prison and, and prisoners very often do that in open prison settings. Uh, they're, they're, there's no big gates or no big fences and no, no great security around them and that's the reason why they're there to try and reintegrate inmates, particularly long-serving inmates, back to society. Now, Garthi and the prison authorities don't know if this was a sporadic or a pre-planned escape and that whether he had someone waiting for him, but he's on the run for a second day this morning. There's a statement from the prison service just simply confirming that a prisoner had absconded from Lockenhouse House on the 4th of October and that the Garthi have been notified. Paul, thank you. That's our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds. During my time at Facebook, I saw that it repeatedly encountered conflicts between its own profits and our safety. Facebook consistently resolved those conflicts in favour of its own products. The result has been a system that amplifies division, extremism and polarisation. In some cases, this dangerous online talk has led to actual violence that harms and even kills people. In other cases, their profit-optimising machine is generating self-harm and self-hate, especially for teenage girls. This is just part of what Francis Haugen will read to members of a US Senate committee today when the former Facebook manager turned whistleblower gives evidence. She will tell senators that the company ignored its own internal research which clearly showed that social media apps like Instagram were actively harming the mental and physical health of young girls. In an interview with CBS on the 60 Minutes show, which was broadcast yesterday, she said that Facebook's algorithms were refined so that the most harmful posts were the most lucrative. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site They'll click on less ads. They'll make less money. Well, Facebook's vice president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, gave this response on CNN. I think it would be too easy, surely, to suggest that with a tweak to an algorithm, somehow all the disfiguring polarization in US politics would suddenly evaporate. Mm. I think it absolves people of asking themselves the harder questions about the historical, cultural, social and economic reasons that, that, that have led to the politics that we have in the US today. 
That's Nick Clegg. We're joined now by Dr Jane Souter, who is Director of DCU's Institute for Future Media, Democracy and Society. Dr Souter, you're very welcome to the programme. Let's go through some of what Francis Haugen was talking about there and referencing. Uh, what did that internal research by Facebook, commissioned by the company itself, show about its Instagram and its impact on young minds and bodies? Um, Well, what they showed was um, that young girls uh, consume eating uh, disorder content. And as they do that, they get more and more depressed. But as they do that, they use the app even more. So there's kind of a feedback uh, cycle where they end up hating hating their body. And I think over 13% of them say as a result they have suicidal thoughts and 17% of them believe that it worsens their eating disorders. So what did Facebook do with that research, Jane? Um, Well, it appears that they hid it. Um, So that's one of the things that we understand that uh, Francis's lawyers have sent to the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US because she's saying that uh, what they say to themselves and what they tell the public and importantly for the SEC investors are two very different things. So in total she's made eight complaints to the SEC uh, saying that what Facebook knows is not what it says to investors or to the public. And in relation to misinformation and disinformation, which permeates um, the various sites, she also said that during the presidential election on election day and the run up to that, the security settings were turned on to prevent misinformation coming through. But once the election was over, those security settings were switched off. And particularly in the run up to what happened um, at Capitol Hill on January the 6th, there were no security settings to allow whatever misinformation came through about the validity of the election result. Yeah, so what she says, she worked for the civic integrity team and that uh, which which is in charge of looking at elections globally and trying to protect them. Now, obviously, the security settings they have are, are no panacea and didn't stop all disinformation in the, the run up to the election. But they did have security settings that they turned on. Afterwards, they turned them off and they disbanded her civic integrity team um, weeks before the before the Capitol riot. So she has other information about the extent to which Facebook was involved in the organisation of those or the Facebook platforms were utilised by people in the organisation of those riots. And that, of course, is information that uh, Congress and the Senate are, uh, are looking for. And she, her comments there that we heard briefly from that clip, that profit essentially took precedence over every other consideration, that the more violent and hateful the content, the more clicks, the more money it generated. And we've heard that before in the last three years, I think, about Facebook again. Is that not appealing to people's desires? Would they not say that we are just giving people what they want? Well, they do, but essentially what they're doing is they um, they use the kind of the worst parts of uh, human psychology and human nature against ourselves. So they amplify the worst part of uh, of human nature, and then the result of that, of course, is the um, extreme political polarization, the hate speech, the disinformation, and the um, attacks on people's mental health.
So that's why she she will say that, for example, tobacco companies would say, well, people really liked smoking nicotine. Um, they hid the, the damage that it did. But when it became clear, then, um, then US regulators and other regulators around the world act against uh, tobacco companies. So that's why, or she would also draw the um, attention of the opioid companies and the action that's been taken there. So she would say that Facebook should be regulated in the same way for the kind of damage that it causes. Yes, and, and I'm interested in, in your view on that. Ultimately, what can be done to regulate Facebook, to change things fundamentally, to make them more accountable, to remove the dangers that surround them? Because she says in her opening statement that Facebook's regulators can see some of the problems, but they're kept blind to what is causing them. They can't craft specific solutions. They can't even access the company's own data on product safety, much less conduct an independent audit. Well, absolutely. This is one of the problems, you know, I've sat in meetings in Brussels where, you know, some of the hundreds of Facebook lobbyists there are, um, you know, trying to persuade the commission to do less. Um, and the problem is that they release very little data. And when they do release data, it's uh, hand chosen parts that are given to, to certain researchers. So I think that regulators and the research community need to be given um, access to the data they need to be able to understand it and they need to be able to regulate it. And I think it's probably there's parts of this in the proposed Digital Services Act, which um, is the draft was published by the Commission in December 20. So, you know, that's still going through. Um, obviously, the US Congress, who everybody thought would be slow to act, may actually be faster than Europe now. But there's a lot of people who think there's not enough focus on how much data we need there and the kind of things that we need to do to regulate, uh, to regulate the company. And indeed, the other social media platforms, you know, we've done um, investigations on COVID disinformation for the BAI and we found that it wasn't just limited to Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram. You know, Snapchat is, is there and we did a, a, a thing on TikTok um, to show. So I think it's something that, um, that needs to be looked at generally as well as Facebook specifically. And obviously it's a global company. So does Ireland, does the EU also have a role here. It cannot be left, can it, to the United States? It can't be left to the United States. So this is the problem that, you know, the the US was very unwilling um, for years and years to act. And the culture there is um, much more in favour of freedom of expression, even if it causes harm, you know, even if you look at the First Amendment and so on, um, than Europe would be. So I think there is an onus on Europe to act and um, there's an onus on Ireland as the host of these companies to really get behind DGCOMS, which is trying to do this, and to try to think about how we're going to implement the Digital Services Act. For example, at the moment, we're, we're saying that we don't want to define disinformation. But in fact, that probably is something that we're going to have to get our lawyers to, uh, to wrestle with. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Dr. Jane Souter, Director of DCU's Institute for Future Media, Democracy and Society. 
Last year marked the 100th anniversary of the Liffey Swim, but like so many events, it fell victim to the pandemic. Well, the good news is it's back with us in studio is Brian Nolan, Head of Operations with the Leinster Open Sea Swimming Committee. Brian, it is good news. What can you tell us about the plans? Well, it is very, very good news. And uh, the plans are, it was, the decision was made only as late as last Monday. Um, it was cancelled. And we went back to Dublin City Council with a great success of running the CJK Harbour Race last weekend. And they saw the safety aspect and they said, OK, they're going to give it a go ahead. So we went to the main sponsors, Jones Engineering. They came on board. We had a meeting last night and it's all systems go for Saturday the 23rd. Now, will it be the same swim as usual or will there be some changes? There are going to be some changes for two reasons. One, it normally starts at the Rory or Moor Bridge right down to the Customs House. But this year, due to water temperature dropping a little bit, and we won't have the time to physically get the road closures, etc. We're going to run it from the customs house down to the old point depot with the tree arena. You must be looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, as soon as uh, it's the world's worst kept secret since Monday, we're trying to keep it in their wraps. <laughs> there was 11 of us met in uh, in office last night and doing out the plans, but the phone has not stopped. And I, I mean, so, so, so much so, we've, we've guys already have to make an application for overseas swimmers. We've uh, Damien Downfield flying in from Bermuda. We've Paul Wynn coming in from Africa. I mean, it's, it's a big, big event for us. So what's the appeal? Why is it so popular? I, I don't know. I mean, we, we grew up with it. My family grew up with it. Uh, all our friends. It's it's as I said. It's it's like the All Island for for sea swimmers. It's 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 the big event. It's a great great family day out. It's really really well supported by the by the sponsors, and uh, it's just a fabulous day. Mm, there's been a surge in the popularity of sea swimming. I think especially during the pandemic. Do you expect that there will be even more entries this year? There, there will be. A, there has been a couple of inquiries already that uh, but I mean the criteria is you must be able to swim at least two kilometres. You must be part of a swim island club. There's 23 registered clubs in Leinster and you must be part of them for insurance reasons. And also with the system that we use, the handicap system, that is that the slower go first, the faster goes last. It gives everybody an equal chance and we've, we've a huge range for, uh, of ages. Uh, the handicap system need to uh, work y- work out the, the swimmers. So it's not just a matter of turning up on the day. No, you must apply to a club and we must uh, get a, a time for you. Right, so this isn't just for pe- isn't for people who just like a bit of a splash. Y- oh, you have to be not. a fairly serious swimmer to, to take have, part in this. You have to prove your pedigree, yes, yes. What was it like last year when it should have been a big, big year for you and you had to call it off? Oh, it was devastating. And I mean, right down to the wire, in fairness to, to Owen Keegan and Tom Doyle of uh, Dublin City Council, they were trying their best but look like everything else uh, COVID, COVID overtook all the decisions and uh, safety is paramount it was devastating for us but even as, as late as last only four weeks ago they were cancelling this race but again down to uh, the success of the, the CJK Dunleary Harbour swim and the other all the clubs coming on board uh, it's going to go ahead mm-hmm. If anybody is listening to us this morning and they like the sound of it and they reckon that they fulfil uh, all the criteria there what should they do well listen get on to uh leinster open sea fe- facebook page that's the the easiest way and all the, all the details are there and uh as i say but anybody who's anybody involved in swimming will know this is on already so uh the, the, it's it's a big big event already the entries are flying in oh absolutely they officially open up on friday at 12 o'clock but they only have a week and a half we've we've an awful lot of work to do to sort out handicaps and everything like, like that so we really only have a, a short window and normally the race is started by the, the the lord mayor and i know we write months in advance to get the 
the permission but hopefully with, with short, nat- short notice that the, the Lord Mayor will do the official start for us this year. Well listen it's lovely to hear of things coming back. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning Brian. Brian Nolan there who's Head of Operations with Leinster Open Sea Swimming. <laughs> Now, Westlife's Mark Vihili has joined the voices of those campaigning for the introduction of surrogacy legislation here. The singer, whose daughter was born to a surrogate in the US two years ago, has spoken publicly on the issue for the first time as part of a new video campaign by the Irish Families Through Surrogacy Group. Our social affairs correspondent, Alva Keneally, reports. On the 5th of April 2021, I came into the world. At four o'clock in the afternoon. I was born in the Ukraine by surrogacy. The voice of a child actor relaying the past six months of Theo Gallagher Hederman's life. To be my mummy. Theo and his parents, Sinead and Mark, were catapulted into the news and into the courts to avoid hotel mandatory quarantine following their return from Ukraine. My parents and their solicitor have to fight so hard to make sure I got home to mine house. Their story lifted the lid on surrogacy in Ireland. They're continuing their campaign by launching this video, calling on the government to publish legislation regulating surrogacy, as Sinead explains. It puts it in very simple terms, the video. Um, you know, it's um, I am the only mummy he's ever going to know, um, but yes... In the eyes of the law, I'm not seen that way. Um, so um, I wanted my son's voice, um, you know, shown and I suppose the reality for him as he grows up in the absence of legislation that's known. I hope that one lady make laws so my mommy it is recognised as my mommy. Now another Irish parent has added his voice to the campaign. I'm a dad and this directly affects my child and my family. It's Mark Feely from Westlife. We don't tend to step up and step in when it's about ourselves, you know. Sort of like you, you don't mind certain things happening to you, even though you should. But when it comes to your child, all of a sudden, all of a sudden I'm on the news talking about politics, you know. Like, I mean, that's the furthest thing that I ever would have done. You know, it's really not something that I historically would have done. But the second it involves my child and her welfare, um, I'm here I am, you know, on the news. And Mark is offering his voice to the campaign because he says that as a dad, he has real concerns right now in the absence of legislation. For couples um, in our position, even something like bringing your child, like everybody does, in to get their jobs, um, and, you're, and then you're worrying, oh, hang on now, well, if, if so-and-so's name isn't down as a parent, are they going to turn me away in front of everybody in the waiting room? Um, that's a very stressful thing. And there's lots of stuff like that in everyday life that, that people in our position, um, especially the parent who's sort of left out by the law. Um, you know, the, the psychology of it and the stress of constantly waking up and going to sleep, um, knowing that you're not officially a child's uh, legal guardian. That's, that's, you know, everybody knows that parenting has its challenges and it's not the easiest thing in the world already. So to have all that extra stuff to worry about and stress about, it's just very unhelpful. And the fact is, I don't think the government or anybody in the country has a problem with it changing. It's just that we have to go through the process of changing it. And so without sort of sounding like, you know, demand and stuff like, but it really does just need to happen as a matter of urgency because until it does, there's hundreds 
or thousands of children and families all over the country that are in a compromised position. The Department of Health has reiterated that the legislation is a priority for the department and the government. Asked if the legislation would be published before the end of the year, it said that along with the Office of the Attorney General, it would continue to engage intensively over the next few months to finalise the legislation, but it would not be possible to give a definitive timeline. In the meantime, solicitor Annette Hickey tries to deter couples from going to countries where surrogacy is not advisable as a solicitor that's working and advising couples, I need to be able to say to couples, listen, here is, here is international surrogacy, here is our legislation, this is the criteria, this is what's involved, this country meets it, this country meets it. And if a couple says to me, what about another country? I say, hold on a second, they don't meet that criteria. Let's ask them, do they meet the criteria? No, they don't. So we don't want to be going there. We don't want to be, no Irish couple wants to support um, surrogacy in countries where the surrogate mother is not respected, where she's not treated with dignity, where the process is not safe and protected for all involved. You know, I, I can't stress how important it is that the government don't walk away from it. For Mark Feely, it's been a big step lending his voice to this campaign. And the other Mark, Theo's dad, recognises that. When we think about it, we're all parents at the end of the day. Uh, it doesn't matter whether the child is two dads, two mums. You know, we're all fighting for the same cause. Um, so to have his support is phenomenal. Uh, and uh, we're really, really thankful to have him backing us with this. Like, you know, look, I'm not the expert on it. Um, I'm kind of just here to sort of try and get a bit more attention onto the fact and then the experts can do the talking. But um, I'm just, as you can see, I'm quite passionate about it because it involves my family and involves my child. So, of course, I am. It's Mark Feely ending that report by Alva Keneally. Now that the government has decided to send Fine Gael, Simon Coveney and Fianna Fáil's Jack Chambers to the Armagh Centenary Service after President Higgins had declined to attend, here's what commuters at Connolly Station in Dublin had to say about that decision to our reporter Amy Neerida this morning. I think they should have stood by his decision now. I think all that's gone on, he was making a stand and I think he should have been backed by it, you know. So do you think the government should roll back on their decision? I think they should, yeah. As far as I remember anyway, what what the commemoration was for was was just to commemorate the history and all this. It wasn't to to create any more division. So to send political representatives um, sounds fine to me. I think it's a good thing that uh, we've reached out um, to Northern Ireland and sent some representatives because overall it's a good thing to build conciliation and move forward and help people to live together in peace. Do you think that'll be the end of it now, might put it to bed? I think so, yes. I think Michael D. Higgins is a very clever man and a very, very good state representative and he will manage relationships very effectively with Northern Ireland and its leaders and people. I don't think they should go. I think they should. I think if the country wants them to go, they should go, but I don't think they should have gone without kind of asking everybody first, you know. Oh, I don't know. I mean, obviously it'd be nice to have a full Ireland, but I don't know, I like Michael D. Higgins and I respect his opinion because <laughs> he's a little cutie. <laughs> Do you think that then the government should reconsider their decision to go? Yeah, I think they should reconsider, definitely. But also there should be peace, so maybe... No, they shouldn't go. They shouldn't go. No. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think it's a good thing that uh, we've reached out um, to Northern Ireland and sent some representatives because overall it's a good thing to build conciliation and move forward and help people to live together in peace. Do you think that'll be the end of it now? I think so, yes. I think Michael D. Higgins is a very clever man and a very, very good state representative and he will manage relationships very effectively with Northern Ireland and its leaders and people. Commuters at Connolly Station in Dublin this morning talking about the government's decision to send Simon Coveney and Jack Chambers to the Armagh Centenary Service at talking to Amy Neriada this morning. Donal Ryan has become the first Irish author to win the Jean Monnet Prize for European Literature. His 2018 book, From a Low and Quiet Sea, was translated into French by Marie Hermé. Donal joins us now. Donal, you're very welcome to the programme. Good morning and congratulations to you. What does this prize mean to you? Good morning. Thanks a million. It means an awful lot. Um, it's, it's always a fantastic feeling to um, have a, anything, any work you do recognised anywhere, but... Um, something kind of special about friends I suppose um, uh, just it feels great um, and it really is I mean it's as much Mary Arme's award as mine um, because of the amazing job she did on the, on the book Well that's it but she's not included in the prize which seems strange She's not fortunately um, but um, I mean you know it's, it's such a, a difficult job it's, to me it's kind of a dark art to be honest translation um, and to take something especially books like mine that are very heavy and Dramatic language and vernacular, um, it's, it must be an almost impossible task. So really, I mean, I have to give Mary, Hermé and Alvin Michel um, as much credit as, as, <laughs> as I get. How does that process work, Donal? How did you and Marie um, get together and so that her translation um, achieved what you wanted to, to write through your book? Well, Marie seems to be a very intuitive, kind of instinctive um, translator she seems to just get the books um very very quickly and it was the same with my previous french translator um rena barasso um but it can be quite an intimate um process you know you have to get very deeply into the text um and i think you have to be a very good writer to be a translator because you almost have to rewrite a book and i think when it comes to a very specific vernacular like there is in my books um you almost have to recast the the, the characters um to uh, a context that's, that'll be familiar to readers in your your home country. Um, but, you know, sometimes translators come over here. Um, my Danish translator, for example, Senior Ling, came over because she wanted to see the Yarra Mountains in Tontina because she translated four of my books. And I think the Yarra Mountains in Tontina and the Silver Mines are mentioned so often. And she wanted to hear she wanted to hear the North Tipperary dialect. She wanted to hear it in her, in her own ears just to get the, um, a real feel for it. And it was lovely, you know, that, and that often happens. And it's a lovely thing when it does. Absolutely. And did Marie do that, or did you do it uh, via email? We did it mostly by email, although we've met a good few times. We've, we've become quite close friends, um, but I know that Marie has a fairly large circle of Irish friends in Paris anyway, so um, she had a good few people to refer to and to, to ask. But did the more mysterious, kind of abstruse um, elements of the Irish vernacular. Well, exactly. I mean, in, in this process, does a lot get lost in translation? Oh, for sure. I remember, it's, it can be really funny, actually. Um, for example, the character of John Cunliffe in my second novel, I think about December, a lot of translators would email or ring, and they, they, they'd be kind of perplexed by John Z. And they'd say, Donald, why does he say these things about himself? It just doesn't seem right. Because I, I know, and I, I would have thought that it, was, it would be universal, this kind of introspection and this self-loading that John Z displays, but it's not always. Um, and then there are things like, you know, the old chestnuts like 
Shifting and Algoning and signs on that are fairly um, specific to certain parts of Ireland. Um, and the ones like, for example, from Malone Quiet Sea, a character um, is speaking to his grandfather and he says, you know, I'm going to get 50 euros for working tonight. And his grandfather says, you are. And then the grandson goes crazy and translators are going, but why? I mean, his grandfather is saying you are. He's agreeing with him. But the kind of nuance of the grandfather going you are is, is, can be can just evanescent. But it is, it's very funny, and trying to explain that can be hard. And, you know, things like long puck competitions and Brendan Cummins, I'm sending over photographs of Brendan Cummins um, to um, China, and a, a long explanation of, of long puck competitions and hurling in general. Well, at the risk of sounding starstruck here, uh, Donald, I, I, I think your book, From a Low and Quiet Sea, is my favourite book of all time. I thought oh, it was so much. absolutely stunning. And it is the, the story of Farouk, whose presence really overshadows it all. Mm. Um, he's in there, Lampy and John. And do you think the themes of that book um, resonate everywhere, in, in pretty much every country, every culture? I think so. I mean, I set out to write a book about manhood when I set down to write from Low and Quiet Sea. Um, and that's what it is, and the three main characters are each as important um, to me as, as each other. Um, but it, it, you know, every book you write, I suppose, is, is quite personal. Um, and it was a book that, you know, at times difficult, um, a difficult process to write. I think it's, it took me longer than all of my other novels to write because I was so intent on, on getting it as right as I could, or, or making it feel as right as I could, um, because I think it's important, you know, to, to strike a note that will resonate and will ring familiar to people and will because you, you want people to be moved by what you write and so it's, it's important to, to work as hard as you can to make sure it feels right absolutely and reading i mean you'll, you'll be delighted with the the judge's comments um because he described you as a young author which is always great you know but he, he described you as one of the great discoveries of irish and world literature comparing you to william faulkner and john mcgahern and saluting the pages of intense lyricism and powerful and inhabited literature. that That's quite a, a, a remarkable and, and deserving tribute. So I have to ask you, I mean, you've obviously written another one since From a Low and Quiet Sea, The Strange Flowers, which was excellent as well. What about the next one? Am I allowed to ask you, is that on the way or? It is. Well, I've, I've finished writing it um, and so it's, it's um, just, we're doing the final edit at the moment, um, and it'll be out next August. It's slated for August next year at the moment, um, and it's provisionally called The Queen of Dirt Island, um, but it's had a few titles so far, so that this <laughs> could change, you never know. But it's, it's kind of a follow-up to Strange Flowers, and I'm, I'm quite happy with it. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's an, that's, is that an exclusive to Morning Ireland? I, we'll claim it anyway, Donald. We'll yeah, claim it, it could anyway, be all right, yeah. Your new book. Um, <laughs> do you have a favourite out of the ones that you've written? I think... Um, Possibly. I shouldn't really, but it's, it's the thing about December because it's the first novel that I finished. Um, and it's, um, I suppose, you know, as I was saying, they're, they're all kind of personal, but that's a book that I wrote for my wife because I never thought I'd be published. And I wrote it just for her. <laughs> kind of to impress her, really. Just, but um, and it's a book that she really loves. And because of that, it's, it's my favourite. Well, lovely. Well, congratulations again and great talking to you this morning. Thank you very much indeed, Donald Ryan. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.